united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. This week on Barely Getting By, American Carnage, we spoke about how the personal meets the political in Joe Biden's long career. We also spoke to Australian press gallery legend Barry Cassidy about his experiences observing and reporting on multiple US presidencies, the role of the media in the 2020 election, and what the November election result means for Australia. Finally, I asked Emma a question that's faded from the headlines but we think still matters. What happens if Donald Trump refuses to leave office? Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. So in a rather surprising turn of events, we've actually seen a good few days for democracy this week. Just yesterday, as of the time of recording, Bolivia has delivered a an absolutely stunning repudiation of the right-wing coup that occurred there last year in its presidential elections. And of course, our neighbours across the ditch in New Zealand have returned the returned to Jacinda Ardern's Labour-led progressive government. That's where I wanted to start with today, because you know, I think a lot of people in Australia and indeed across liberal democracies really admire Jacinda Ardern and the kind of politics that she very clearly aspires to embody. And that's a politics that is, you know, in a leadership style that is openly emotional, caring and unifying. So I want to start with the premise that Joe Biden, through his political career and especially in the way that he's positioning himself, as we come up to the US presidential election in November, he's trying to present himself as that sort of leader and as quite direct repudiation of Donald Trump. Of course, this is happening against a background of serious attempts by the Republican Party and by Donald Trump to destabilise those ambitions. And this is obviously getting increasingly desperate as Joe Biden's lead in the polls in America firms, and it looks increasingly unlikely that Donald Trump is going to win that election by legitimate means. And I'm talking right now about a story that has emerged in the USA, which has dragged Joe Biden's family into the limelight in a very unwelcome way. And it's a story that appeared in the New York Post, which is, of course, one of the Rupert Murdoch-owned daily newspapers in the USA. It was unverified. It was very poorly sourced. Apparently, the New York Post's own reporters declined to put their bylines to the story. It was also apparently fed to the paper by Rudy Giuliani, who many people, if they if they drag their minds back to the early 2000s, will remember him as the pugnacious mayor of New York City in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks, more recently reinvented as Donald Trump's lawyer and one of his chief media surrogates. The point I'm trying to make here is that this is a story that was trying to connect Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, quite directly to corruption in the Ukraine. And it's kind of reheating a story that did the rounds around the time of the Ukraine scandal, really going back a couple of years now. Is that, is that right, Em? Oh, years are bleeding into one for me now. Yeah, time means nothing. Time, time means absolutely nothing. Um, but insofar as this story has made an impression amongst amongst readers of the of the mainstream press, so it hasn't really been given much airtime in mainstream and reputable news sources, 
it hasn't made the impression that Rudy Giuliani and I assume Donald Trump would want it to make because what's actually come out of this is an impression of Joe Biden as a fundamentally decent human being and an extremely caring father, particularly for his son, Hunter, who is known to be quite a troubled individual. My son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's, he's, he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. So I thought we'd start here. Between the fact that Joe Biden is positioning himself as this uniquely caring political figure and how that connects to his personal life. So, Emma, could you tell us more um, about Joe Biden as a person and as a politician? Yes, of course I can. Um, so so Joe Biden, it, I guess, to, to go to the kind of practicalities of his political career, he was elected as a senator for Delaware in 1972, and he served as, as senator for Delaware until 2009. So he's now the state's longest serving senator. Um, he had a long career, of course, in the Senate, most notably on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then he became Barack Obama's vice president and served, of course, for two terms. He himself has now run for president or for the nomination four times, twice in the 1980s. And then in 2008, again, before, before this time around, his entire political career has been marked by grief and mourning and that's that's why we see him now Chloe I think as this figure of singular empathy and and also grief that began with his very first term as senator because even before he was sworn in in 1973 his first wife Nelia and his daughter Naomi were killed in a car accident um, in the week before Christmas and his two sons Bo and Hunter were both injured so Joe Biden's political career began in in the shadow of this basically unimaginable tragedy, and it it has marked him ever since, personally, of course, but also in his political career. So Biden is known from the very start of his career as this as this figure of grief, and he's kind of famous for it, for it. So one of his, I guess, trademarks, maybe for want of a better word, is that he gives eulogies. He's the senator that is the go-to for funerals, for people of all political persuasions, you know, on both sides of the aisles. And he, in fact, quite famously keeps a binder in his office or wherever he is of his eulogies and, and it's indexed, you know, so he goes back through it and and he's very good at this. You know, people go to him for this for a reason because he is this figure of, of singular empathy and a, and a man who understands grief and who has, who has, I suppose, kind of gotten through grief. My dad used to say, Joey, what makes you so special that you think you're exempt from pain? And uh, what I decided to do for me was to deal with the things that... Uh, gave me purpose. But my, my understanding of, of Biden as this kind of singular figure of grief in both the personal but also the political sense is is really shaped, Chloe, by one particular piece of writing, which I keep coming back to, and it's this extraordinary article um, in the New York Review of Books by Fintano Tool that was published earlier this year. It's called The Designated Mourner, and it kind of takes apart in detail this idea of, of Biden as the mourner, as the political mourner, because he is, of course, this kind of tragic figure of, of grief and enduring empathy. In fact, 
O'Toole says that Joe Biden is the most gothic figure in American politics. I'm quoting here, of course. He's haunted by death, not just by the private tragedies his family has endured, but by a larger and more public sense of loss. And I think that's what why this article is so extraordinary and so captivating because it weaves that personal grief with Joe Biden's political persona and it and it kind of explains I think really clearly how he, his personal grief has become a kind of surrogate for the grief of particularly progressive Americans and O'Toole argues that the the vehicle for that is Biden's adoption of Irish Catholicism I guess what you're saying there is that Joe Biden, he has, he's, he's been quite adept in attaching this symbolism to himself. And I'm wondering how that came through at the beginning of his career, leaving aside, of course, you know, unexpected, great personal tragedy. So what was it about the 1970s that would make such a figure possible in American politics? Well, O'Toole argues, I think, very convincingly that, that Biden in, um, I guess adopting it's it's actually really hard to talk about this in a way that doesn't make it sound really cynical. I think O'Toole's really careful to say that this is, Biden is a genuinely decent human being, and when we talk about him kind of adopting personas or the way that he uses his grief, that's not necessarily in a cynical way. It is in a genuine way, but it has political and strategic consequences. So O'Toole argues that in the 1970s, what Biden did was kind of seize the mantle of the Kennedys. So as Biden is coming to political prominence, of course, Americans are living in the shadow of the murder of the of the two Kennedy brothers. And what Biden kind of does in becoming, in embracing this Irish Catholicism in his faith and his kind of political persona is an attempt really to kind of channel the Kennedys and set himself and his family as well, particularly his boys up as the kind of logical heirs to that legacy, to that political legacy, and and to playing that role as the kind of young, unifying figure that acts as a kind of bridge, I suppose, between white America and black America. What Biden is doing is tapping into the very real political grief and sense of loss that comes with not just the loss and the murder of the Kennedys, but the loss of that political project. Because we are, of course, by now in the era of Nixon and then Gerald Ford and later Ronald Reagan. So that's tapping into, I guess, the kind of the sense of loss of opportunity on the progressive and even the kind of centrist side of American politics. I think it's yeah, I think it's really important that you make that distinction between a very cynical use of a political legacy and a political persona and what you see and what what Fintan O'Toole sees Biden doing. And I think perhaps perhaps the way to square that circle is to think really carefully about the role of the president in American public life, where I think quite either, you know, legitimately or at the very least Honestly, he is seen by large sections of the American public as, you know, an avatar of American of American spirit, of what America he is what America represents in the world. So I think, you know, you, you don't have to you don't have to think that Joe Biden is a cynical political player to recognise that he does see politicians and particularly the presidency as potent expressions of what America means, what America has lost in this case, and what America could become. So to bring it back to the present, do you see Joe Biden 
positioning himself and a potential Biden presidency as once again addressing a period of great loss. So clearly what we're seeing right now in America, which is well over 200,000 people who have died because of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I I absolutely do. You know, I think Biden would always have gone down that path when it comes to the way that he confronts Trump. He always would have gone with that persona of kindness and empathy in, you know, in stark contrast to the current commander in chief. But the fact of the coronavirus pandemic has meant that he's lent into that much more than I think than he otherwise would have. And, you know, quite rightly, of course, Chloe, as you say, you know, we're, we're, well past 200,000 deaths. So the the country is awash in grief and, and sadness. And I think Biden is really well placed to acknowledge that grief, you know, because, because that grief is largely going unacknowledged by the current president. But he, it does in a way, I think, obscure that kind of political strategy making that he has done in the past because Biden has a very long career um, in places like the Senate Judiciary Committee where you also can't just be a nice guy. You know, like he is a senator. He is a head kicker. He, he, he does have a little bit of the Lyndon Johnsons about him, but that has, you know, that is being left behind. Yeah, and that was that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about because you said that Joe Biden has seen him, himself and his career as a bridge between white Americans and black Americans. And I think that that is, that is quite potentially the point at which this close relationship between the personal Joe Biden, the very kind, the kind conciliatory man, and the realities of American politics comes unstuck. So, you know, when I was looking into Joe Biden, you know, I was reading a lot about how he, in his early career, he would reach across the aisles and make personal friends and political allies out of Republicans and even Democrats who, in fact, were segregationists, which seems astonishing to me. It is. It is quite astonishing. It is very Joe Biden. You know, he is that kind of person that insists on seeing the good in everybody and that has led him to make friendships as you say Chloe with committed segregationists and early on in the nomination process you know that was where Kamala Harris got him and got him really good because she said you know Joe while you were busy making friends with this committed racist in the senate she was one of the little girls who's being bust in order to try and desegregate schools and so I think that's where and again O'Toole does this just absolutely beautifully, Biden can and should be scrutinised for for this political behaviour because what this does, what what his insistence on finding the good in everybody, which isn't in and of itself a a bad thing, but what it does is kind of, as O'Toole says, it depoliticises pain. So everybody feels grief in some way. Everybody's life is touched by pain. I can relate to everybody, including, you know, little black girls who are being bussed to try and desegregate America and the committed segregationist white supremacists who are trying to stop this from happening. You know, how do you reconcile that? That's where we come up against how all of this yearning for this kind of lost era of bipartisanship obscures the fact that what you're doing there is kind of is essentially asking African-American people to be nice to white supremacists. And that's that's not a thing. Yeah. And I and I can't help but think that this is a debate that is kind of almost, and again, you know, to be really kind of crude and instrumental about it, that is almost 
necessarily being lost in the heat of an election battle where the, the, the threat is much greater than the divisions within the Democratic Party and amongst American progressives. So I think that this is potentially a, a much bigger question for a future Joe Biden presidency than it is for this current election campaign. Barry Cassidy is one of Australia's most experienced political journalists. He has covered federal politics for more than 40 years, reporting on 13 federal election campaigns. Barry has been a foreign correspondent based in Washington and Brussels, and he hosted the ABC's Sunday morning political discussion program Insiders for 18 years. He's also an adjunct professor at RMIT University, and Emma spoke to Barry this week. Barry, obviously you have a lot of experience with the United States, which is why we wanted to to speak to you, both in your time as a a press secretary to the Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke and and later as a foreign correspondent. So I wanted, if we could, to start with your visits as press secretary in that official capacity during the the Reagan and then the Bush administrations, if I've got my history um, Correct. So we were wondering what your your lasting impressions of those administrations were, seeing them from up close. Well, I, I really started to study it more closely, of course, when I arrived in the United States for a four-year term, um, and that was um, an ex- extraordinarily different place uh, to what it is now in terms of the mood of the place. It was the, um, the early, early months of 1991, and... America then was a confident country. It was self-assured. Um, it, um, it, it, I think it, it had respect on the world stage. There was some hostility towards it. Of course, there always is uh, towards the United States, and it was just coming out of the, uh, the Gulf War. Um, but there was a lot of admiration, and certainly not this new element, I think, that, is, uh, that, that, that now exists. America wasn't pitied anywhere, <laughs> and, and, and now I think that's, that's a new element, that America... Is, is pitied by some because of what's happened, but but the confidence I think came from um, America since the Vietnam War. It had um, um, I, I, uh, there was a, a, a feeling um, that they were um, they were going to um, to endless wars um, without ever achieving anything, and and they came back from that uh, the, the the Persian Gulf War, the one that was sanctioned by the United Nations. Um, um, as having won, they they'd finally won a war, and I think they felt good about that, that they'd achieved their their aim, and that was basically to get um, um, to get a, a, a Iraq to withdraw. So, um, it and also I think the other um, aspect of American society that had started to fade was the the Nixon experience, um, because Reagan had been um, president for for eight years, and because George Bush, um, George W. Bush, had been, George um, uh, Bush Senior had been uh, the running mate to, to Ronald Reagan, then he was well regarded as well. And in fact, off the back of that war, he, his personal popularity was around 90%. So that was the feeling uh, when I arrived. It was it was a self-confident country um, that seemed to be relaxed about its president. I mean, you, you don't get 90% uh, popularity ratings for nothing. Um, but of course, that was all, all to change in the, in the basis of about 12 months. Yeah, so what what do you think changed that feeling in the United States? So it's obviously not something that's come with Trump, though he's he's arguably exacerbated it. 
Yeah, but what the initial change, if I can just stay on, on that particular period, what, what changed over that period was that there, there was this creeping sense that the economy was starting to uh, uh, starting to go backwards and that a recession was looming. And, and then, of course, um, Bill Clinton um, enters the stage. And, and he was a, um, a governor of Arkansas who was brash enough to have a run at the presidency. I remember seeing him on C-SPAN talking about education when he was still governor of Arkansas, and I couldn't believe how articulate and well-briefed he was on, on, the, on the topic. So he emerges as, as the candidate just at the time when George Bush's popularity was starting to fade. And, and then, of course, I think the day that he chose um, Al Gore as his running mate, so he had this sort of uh, charismatic Bill Clinton and a political savvy wife, and then a, a running mate, not only around the same age and same era, but they were both from the South, effectively, Al Gore being the junior senator from Tennessee and uh, Bill Clinton from Arkansas, so that the Republicans' attempts to, to paint them as Northern liberals didn't work. So sort of the youth and the energy of that ticket, um, balanced with the fact that, of course, Ross Perot uh, ran against him, a kind of eccentric um, but very savvy businessman, and he, he tended to take more votes from the Republicans than the Democrats, so that helped Bill Clinton as well. So as Bush's popularity was eroding, and it ended up settling at about 40%, um, you had this emergence of Bill Clinton, and, uh, and that certainly changed the, the domestic situation uh, incredibly. Yeah, it did. And, and what do you think then is, is, I guess, the legacy of the Clintons? I think it's really hard to see the Clinton administration clearly now because of all that's happened since. But again, what, yeah. what are your kind of lasting impressions of, of Bill Clinton as president? I think it gave the, the country um, um, energy and, and confidence. Um, they, uh, there are a couple of very early scandals um, and he just brushed them aside. One right during the campaign itself, which which the country just put to one side and and didn't think was too important. And then, of course, the uh, Lewinsky uh, affair. Once he got into into um, into the into the White House, so he managed to get through all of that. But I think it was just the um, this new way of looking at things um, that there was a um, you know a new kid on the block with new ideas and and giving them a, a fresh uh, impetus around the world and. Uh, not that George um, uh, Herbert Walker Bush hadn't been active on the world stage. I mean, it's a remarkable comparison now with the way that the uh, the Republicans are operating out of the White House. But he, he was a globalist, and he had uh, very strong relationships around the world, and and felt that alliances were really important, and and talked about it a lot. Uh, so that was that was a major contrast, I think, between the, that Republican president and, and the one in the White House now. Yeah, one, one of the many, I think. Um, I guess to, to go back to the Clintons, I think that the Clintons and, of course, Hillary Clinton in particular, cop a lot of the blame for, for the rise of Trump. Do you think that's fair if we look back at the legacy of both Bill and Hillary Clinton? Um, that she in some way was responsible for the emergence of Donald Trump? Yeah, for, for his victory in particular. Yeah, well, because she ran a poor campaign... Um, then um, I guess she can be held partly responsible that had she run a better campaign, she she, she would have won. But you, you go back over those results, though, at, um, in 2016, and you know the three states that, that I'm sure most people will be paying attention to in a couple of weeks' time, and Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. She lost Pennsylvania by 0.7 of a percent. She lost Michigan by 0.3 of a percent, and she lost Wisconsin by 0.8 of a percent. All under one percent, 
Had she won those three, then she would have been safely ensconced in the White House. So it was a very close-run thing. Um, the, the the release of the the email towards the end, of course, didn't help. But I, I just think she she ran a, a very poor campaign and didn't get a handle on Trump at all. Um, whereas this time around, it'll be um, very different because they've America's had four years of Trump. He's not this sort of enthusiastic um, change merchant on the way now. They've, they've seen him in operation for four years. Okay, so so it sounds like you you're feeling fairly confident about about the result in a couple of weeks. Well, in those three states um, that I mentioned, and um, and Joe Biden need only win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, mm. and um, and assume that Trump doesn't pick up any, and then, uh, I think that would be remarkable. I don't think he would do that. Um, those three would give him um, the White House because there, there are a lot of electoral college votes in those, um, especially in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, so that would get him. Not not that that would only be a narrow victory. He needs 270. That would give him 278 electoral college votes. Only just enough. But then, of course, there are other states like Florida, North Carolina, Arizona in play as well. So it could be a, quite a, a bit bigger victory than that. But the the point about the polls got it wrong last time, in um, not nationally, but in those key states, and they were out by more than five percent, which is remarkable to get to get a poll outside the margin of error. And what's the point of a margin of error if you can't uh, encapsulate it, the error? Um, but this time around, Biden has been in front for longer and further in front than Hillary Clinton. And even if you average them out now, um, I saw a poll this morning that suggested um, uh, that told us where the situation was three weeks out. Well, we're now only two weeks out and Joe Biden is better placed than Hillary Clinton. And keep in mind, she ran it very close. Um, so it, it does look as if um, uh, you know, it would be a major surprise if, uh, if Joe Biden was not to win. I, I think you're right, Barry. You know the, the polls are pretty clear, and we we've discussed before that if in a kind of uh, air quotes normal election cycle, we'd be looking at the kind of George Bush senior loss or Reagan's second term. You know where he's just kind of decimated the opposition and won you know everything but um, Wisconsin. But that assumes though that this is a normal election cycle, and and one of the things that Chloe and I have been talking a lot about, of course, is the um, seeming, I guess, increasing presence and activity of, of white supremacist groups in the United States and even the president's, you know, hints or threats or jokes or whatever you want to call them about refusing to leave office. What do you think, yeah. what what influence do you think that might have on the election? Well, it when you break down the, the, the American electorate, 50% or so of them vote. So 35% of those who do vote, and that's not enough, of course, but 35%, I think you could say, are actual rusted-on Trump voters. It wouldn't matter what he said or did, they'll be voting for Trump this time around. And that's, I think, largely because he feeds into every prejudice that exists out there, um, whether it be people of colour or immigrants or women, um, this fear and distrust of China. He plays um, the rural America against uh, against the big cities, and, and look, there's an audience for that. There's a big audience for that. And, and that gives him that, that base. Um, but then he's got to build on that. He, he's got to build on that to win. And I think that's where he's struggling this time around because make America great again. Okay, it worked four years ago. He's still saying it, make America great again. Well, what happened to that idea? Uh, so I think Americans are just starting to get a, a sense now that, uh, um, that he hasn't achieved what he set out to do. But more than that, what, what they've witnessed, I think, all the way along is is this rather 
revolting individual who, who does appalling things. Um, he, and I, surely, eventually, I think that the feeling that people must get is, well, hang on, you, the, the American president has a special place in American life, different to the prime minister of Australia, for example, mm-hmm. um, when he occupies the White House. It's, it used to be almost bipartisan once they got there and, and people supported them. And that's why so many of them get re-elected. But one one thing we ignored, I think, is the impact that his behaviour has um, as a leader on on the adolescents, the people who are coming through now, in terms of of what is acceptable um, in public life. Um, and I think that's just been distorted and blurred because of because of his behaviour. So even before we get to the coronavirus, I think there was those sorts of elements, I think, were starting to play into the into the debate. And Americans, even those who um, who supported him last time, um, are rethinking it this time around. But given that, given the administration's handling of the coronavirus and also this um, extreme and I think justified racial unrest, what, what do you think the, might the consequences of that be on election day and beyond, given that, you know, the way that President Trump has been essentially kind of calling out to those right-wing militias, you know, telling the Proud Boys to to stand by, do you think... Do you think yeah. people should be worried about that? Uh, yes, they should, because there are going to be a, a lot of very unhappy people if and when uh, Donald Trump loses this election. And um, I, I've just found it the most breathtaking um, contribution from, from a leader uh, that I've seen when, when he refuses to, to, in advance to accept the result of a democratically held election. And, and, to, and to say, as you said, the, the, that he said to the Proud Boys, uh, stand up and stand by, um, look, that they have taken their lead uh, from Donald Trump all the way along. Um, this this inherent racism was always there, uh, but he brought it out into the open. He brought it out into the sunlight because because of some of his rhetoric um, that encouraged them. Um, you know, one of the very first things that happened when I arrived in America in uh, in 1991 was that Rodney King um, was was bashed by four LAPD police officers. Now he, he was a, a guy who was uh, drink driving pulled over, and, and this is one of the first times I think when a major incident was actually captured and went around the world with the, the police bashing and kicking him. Mm. Now, what happened with that though is that didn't immediately set off major riots around the country. Those riots happened a year later um, when the three, the four police officers, well, three were acquitted and one there was a, a hung jury, I think. Um, but when that result came out and people realised these people were not going to be punished for what they did, that's when the riots started. And they were massive. They were bigger, much bigger than the riots we're seeing right at the moment. And something like 60 people were killed. Um, but the difference this time is that they're far more widespread. They're happening in, in far more cities around America. And they're picking up now on, on any abuse that they see. That They're, they're, they're acting immediately uh, through Black Lives, Lives Matter uh, to draw attention to this. So um, this appeared to be at the time... Um, the reaction to one particularly vicious assault, whereas what we're now seeing is, is in its acceptance, I think, right across the board, um, that nothing has been done over all those years. Rodney King was 30 years ago, and that nothing has been done, and that it's that that, I, that it's far greater, deeper problem um, than than Ameri- a lot of Americans um, realised existed. What do you make of the of the media's coverage of the Trump presidency? Well, the media is just as polarised as the rest of the country. Um, you know, people rallying around the various media organisations 
in the United States as they would political parties. Mm. I mean, we're sort of getting to that point here as well um, with the um, um, with, with News Corp and, and, and particularly the Australian, where, where people feel as if it's a political party all on its own. Um, but that's what people do. They rally around them um, in, in that way. Uh, Pew Research uh, recently um, released um, some of their research, and it, and it showed that, and it doesn't, it won't surprise anybody, but it shows you the divide that the Democrats tend to trust the mainstream media. You know, all the, the, the TV networks, CNN in particular, but NBC, ABC and the rest of them, and the major print and online websites, while the Republicans trust essentially one, one news source, and that's Fox News. Um, so the, the Republicans have a quite a narrow view of what they feel is, um, is media that you can rely on. The Democrats have a slightly wider spread. But... It, it comes down to that. It, it's that simple. They're, they're, the Republicans trust some of the offshoots, you know, the fringe players and um, Russell Ingborg and these these kind of commentators. Mm. Um, but that's the extent of it. And, and the level of distrust is really high, considering that there are moderate Democrats, there are moderate Republicans, but it runs at about 60%. That they don't have any trust in, uh, the Republicans don't have any trust in mainstream media, 60% of them. And the same with the Democrats, that 60% of them don't trust in anything they see on Fox. So it's, it's, it is a, it's a polarised. It's a polarised um, media. Um, and if, if there is a benefit at all in this um, to Joe Biden, it's that in the last few months we've seen some cracks on Fox News. Some people are starting to take the view that Trump is just too appalling, tells too many lies, it's just beyond the pale and they're starting to drift away a bit. And I think when that happens, that impacts on those who trust them. And so if they see their favourite commentators hesitating, then I think they're likely to start hesitating themselves and thinking maybe they can go into that sort of comfort level and, and start be a bit more cynical about everything. So, um, But, it, but it's, it's fascinating to watch because it is the most divisive media you could see anywhere. And it certainly wasn't like that 30 years ago in Iraq. Yeah, I th- I think you're right, and and you you mentioned as well the the role of of News Corp and the role that they play in Australia. I think is is something that of course is is at front and centre at the moment. What do you think of the the coverage of Trump in Australia? Do you think we're seeing a, a similar kind of trend? Yes, um, the difference is it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, only a handful of uh, Australian Americans are going to vote, so it doesn't matter what they do. Um, but what we are seeing is, is um, I mean, Trump is, is is treated far more generously in the News Corp papers here in Australia than he is in any other um, part of the media. Um, uh, Miranda Devine, for example, the Daily Telegraph yeah. was sent to, to New York for the duration of the campaign um, because they, they understood what she was going to report and what sort of line she would take. And they thought it was important to get that kind of uh, point of view into, in, into a paper in the United States. And then off the back of that, she then does... Um, commentary around the country. So they've, they've played that kind of a role. I keep hearing that Rupert Murdoch is, uh, is going off Donald Trump, but I don't see any evidence of it in uh, on Fox News, really, or in the, in the newspapers, even those here. But look, the, the papers here don't play a part, really, in, in the campaign um, at all. But all they do is, is, is expose, um, expose where they really stand on, um, on Donald Trump. That's right. And they have, I mean, as much as you're absolutely right, they don't have a particular influence in that regard. But but some of those Murdoch papers have been running the line that 
a Trump, a successful Trump re-election will actually be better for Australia, or that it actually doesn't matter who who wins, Trump or Biden, Australia is in the same position. What do you what do you make of that? No, because I think Australia lives in a world, and Trump is bad for the world. Um, look at uh, he's um, um, the, the the most striking thing internationally. I think about Donald Trump is why is he so pro-Russia and why is he so anti-China? Um, now, in the past, you know, American presidents have had a, a, a deal of scepticism about both of those countries, but he is so so blindly pro-Russia. And, and what for why? What's the reason behind that? Um, there, there are so many kind of questions around this that he became right from the outset anti-China, aggressively so, and then took them on over trade. But then it was more than that would have pleased the Russians. But then more than that, um, he attacked NATO, which is an organisation basically set up to keep an eye on Russia. Um, he wanted to include Russia in the G7. And, and, and then perhaps the most striking of all, when, the, when there was that story around that the Russians had contracted out the, the lives of Americans in Afghanistan, he didn't condemn them for it. He didn't condemn them. And he, was, he offered that opportunity so often. And so this is this intriguing question that hangs over all of this. What is it about Donald Trump and Russia? In any case, and the wider question about how it affects Australia, it affects Australia in the same way it affects every other country around the world, that Donald Trump is creating chaos on the world stage. And alliances don't mean what they used to. And, and, um, and, and he's trying to tear up the, the, the trade system and, and doing deals that only suit America. So I can't see how anyone could possibly argue that uh, the re-election of Donald Trump would be good for Australia. No, I, of course, I agree with you on that. Um, do you think, I think there are a lot of claims around exactly this, that, that Trump has damaged the United States' reputation, its international reputation, beyond repair. Do, do you think that reputation can be salvaged? Um, you know, it's perhaps the reputation can be to an extent, but what concerns me is whether America is in serious and permanent decline and that Donald Trump has exacerbated that problem, and maybe there's no way back for America, that they can never be the country that they once were. And there's a lot of economic evidence around that, there's a, um, but certainly in terms of the position that they hold in the world uh, is no longer what it was. Uh, now, Joe Biden will come into office. There's some even question marks over him because he's, he seems to be a confused individual at times. Um, people worry whether he can get his head around all, all of the major issues, um, but he will be—he will be a far better person to deal with in, in terms of the for the rest of the world. The question is: Is America in permanent decline? And there's a lot of evidence to suggest there is, because when you see that what Donald Trump has been able to expose, simply by being there and in a sense encouraging uh, the darker side of America, you see what really exists in that country. And I don't see anybody puts that right in the, short, in the short or medium term. You know, with their gun culture, for example, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you fix um, the way that Americans see each other? Um, so, and, and now that they've had a sense of power, um, you know, I mean, the real Maddie is out there in, in the United States, and they've had a sense of power. Um, how do you take that away from them without them reacting in, uh, um, in uh, maybe in very unfortunate ways? So I think they've got a they've got a deep seated problem. Um, I think uh, Joe Biden can restore some trust uh, with world leaders, um, but I'm not sure that they can rebuild America to where it once was.
Okay, that that's really interesting, and I, I think it it probably leads leads me to our um our last question, which I think kind of go, goes back to the start and to that to that first president that you that you encountered, Ronald Reagan, who who once said, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing, he he said that the United States was largely a force for good in the world. Yeah. On balance, you know, if if we think that the if we assume that the United States is in decline, on balance, do you think looking back that Reagan was right? Well, it's it's been a mixed record, hasn't it? Um, a force for good in the world, yes. When I first uh, went to the United States, the feeling was um, that the Americans, Ronald Reagan and then um, uh, George Bush Senior, had done a lot to um, um, to um, in terms of the Cold War, to thaw the Cold War and, and get the world into a, in a better place. Uh, Germany had been reunified. Um, communism had been pretty much beaten. And 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 so they, they were a force for good. But there was still their, their um, overseas um, interventions um, in, in some places that didn't didn't play well with the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, it, it's a mixture of the two. Even now when we're thinking about the, the interference in the United States election and they make so much about that, how would you tally the number of elections around the world the United States have interfered in? And so that doesn't build trust in the, in, in the United States as a good global citizen either. Um, so they've had a mixed a mixed history, but they have had times in their history through the 90s, um, in particular the 80s and 90s, where I think that, that was a fair enough comment from, um, from, from Ronald Reagan um, that they, they were, by and large, a force for good. And there are a lot of Americans, a lot of Americans now, and a lot of them in very senior positions, that are still, you'd have to put in that category, that they're, they're, their hearts are in the right places and they, given their opportunity, would be a force for good. But there's a lot of evil in the country as well. I'm sure that anyone who is observing the US election, even half as closely as Emma and I are, is kind of aware of how abruptly a, a mood can shift and a mood in reporting, a mood in commentary around the election. And I think one of the things I've really detected in the past probably two weeks or so has been a shift from you know, I guess fear and panic about what would and may still happen if Donald Trump loses the election and if he refuses to concede office or go quietly to a growing sense of confidence at the very least in the possibility that Joe Biden will win not only will not only win the election, but will win the election decisively. But because Emma and I are well-established doom merchants, I couldn't get away from the possibility that Donald Trump may, one, win the election, two, may refuse to leave office. And that is something that he has publicly signalled. He has publicly stated his intention to not go quietly. So I thought I would ask Emma about the legal, the political, and the legal and the political possibilities of that happening. So in short, Emma, 
can Donald Trump refuse to leave office? Technically, and I'm going to emphasise, underline italics, technically, no, he can't. So if Trump, you know, again, big if, if Trump loses the election, Joe Biden then becomes the president-elect. And at a around about lunchtime on the 20th of January in 2021. So the constitution is very clear about this. Biden is sworn in as president and he becomes the commander in chief of the army. So Trump just kind of automatically almost goes back to being a regular citizen. So what that means is he's no longer the commander in chief. Legally, he has no power over the military. And, you know, theoretically speaking, if it becomes necessary, President Joe Biden can kind of order the military in and like get them to drag Donald Trump out of the White House. Like it is still, I've explained this a number of times, but it's still extraordinary to me that I'm even having this conversation about American democracy. So that's, that's the kind of technical, I suppose, constitutional side of things. And I think people uh, have felt quite reassured about this, that, that, you know, the constitution kind of lays this out very clearly, 20th of January, it's all done. Trump's back to a regular citizen. But all of this assumes, right, all of this kind of theoretical discussion assumes that in a situation where the president of the United States has lost the election but is refusing to concede that loss, the rule of law as we know it still exists and still is a thing. And I think that's a big assumption in this very hypothetical, at least at the moment, situation. That's the, and that's for me that that's because of a number of reasons. So the first thing is, if Trump is refusing to leave office, which you know I think is not that difficult to imagine, because there's no scenario, at least in which I can imagine that Trump that Trump can process the humiliation of losing an election, that he can accept that kind of a, a humiliation. So if he is refusing to leave office, we I think, you know, we can safely assume that he's not particularly worried about following the technicalities of the law. Like, we know he's not particularly worried about that. I mean, look, having said that, the military, a number of military leaders have said that they will only obey the orders of the commander in chief. So they're not going to follow illegal orders by a president but or, or a former president. But again, that's assuming that the situation is very clear cut. Because what these theoreticals do is kind of completely collapse the time between the election and that date on the 20th of January when the, the president, the former president, has to leave the White House. That's a long time. And, and that's something we've spoken about before, that long period between November 3rd and mid-January in 2021. And there are a number of key dates in that calendar. And that's something that we actually spoke about a few episodes ago on, on the podcast. But we talked about it very much from the legal angle and about the, from the angle of the possibilities that Trump and his team would use legal means to try to frustrate the process of, say, counting votes or so counting votes or an, the electoral college vote in ways that would almost lead Donald Trump to retain the presidency either by default or because of a Supreme Court intervention. In that in that interim period, that long, long, long interim period, does does Donald Trump still have he still has the powers of the presidency? How can he use those to to help his position? Well, so he still has the full powers of the presidency. I think we're kind of accustomed to seeing this as a a lame duck 
period, right? You know, you go back to, for example, the last term of George Bush Jr. in the aftermath of the Katrina catastrophe where, and the global financial crisis, where he basically just did nothing. Like, he's just kind of sitting around and, and waiting for somebody else to take over. So that's kind of how I think we we imagine it. And the norms of American politics suggest that the president a president who is leaving office shouldn't be doing anything major, um, you know, shouldn't be enacting reform or, or trying to get legislation through or, I don't know, confirming a Supreme Court justice. But those are norms. They're not laws. You know, in that period between November and January, the president is still the president and has all the powers of the presidency at his disposal. So that's why I think, you know, in this scenario, that time is crucial because Trump is still the president and he can use those powers to create essentially whatever situation he wants. He can be challenging election results. He can be out there conspiracy mongering. He can be out there doing call outs, giving those call outs to white supremacists and well-organized militias. And I think that's the kind of terrifying thing. And that's why we have to be so careful in these hypothetical situations to know what the difference is between the kind of theoretical legal situation and how it might actually play out in reality and how individuals in positions of power will react to what is potentially a completely unprecedented situation for American democracy. I think it's important that we do draw those distinctions between what actually happens and what theoretically might happen through these exercises of brutal political force and power that you're describing. Because I think in a very real sense, the real test of the Trump presidency hasn't come to pass yet. So a lot of people are kind of, you know, I'd say prematurely reviewing the Trump, the Trump presidency as if it's already happened. And they're finding that, you know, a lot of the alarmism that, you know, we're absolutely guilty of around Trump and his authoritarian tendencies, that it hasn't come to pass because on the whole, he's been quite ineffectual. He's been quite incompetent and American institutions have stood up to that test. But I think the scenarios that you're laying out, which seem not alarmist to me, but quite realistic given everything that Trump is saying, that's the real test, isn't it? That's the real test of the Trump presidency and of the American democracy and American institutions. I think it's potentially the biggest test. And I, you know, given everything that you've just said, and as much as Trump has been in some ways ineffective and and his administration has been plagued by incompetence he has been very successful he and his entire administration have been very successful at at not just undermining the rule of law but undermining faith in the rule of law and i think setting up a kind of narrative situation where it's almost it's almost normalized that the aftermath of the election will be complete chaos or that, you know, the president might declare some kind of state of emergency in some particular county where voting has to stop or whatever because there's evidence of fraud or because white supremacists are active or or something like that. And I think that it's that normalisation and that undermining of the, the rule of law and those institutions through legitimate democratic means often you know it must be said trump's use of the supreme court is is perfectly legal um it what it does is undermine political norms and i think all of those stress tests are are basically creating cracks in in the edifice and as you say chloe the biggest test is yet to come and i don't think anybody can say with any confidence whether 
the institutions of American democracy will pass or fail that test. Thanks for listening. Don't forget that if you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes.